in the 11FS offices in London for episode 95 of Blockchain Insider, that countdown to 100. Uh, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain and cryptography meet the changing worlds of finance, tech, and consumer products. Today we bring you Banking Culture Hinders Blockchain Adoption, Crypto Kicks Coming to a Nike Store Near You, and Chickens on a Blockchain. At last, all this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined, as usual, by the one and only Colin G. Platt near a field. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. How are you doing, Simon? Not too bad. What have you been up to lately? You've been uh, conspiring to uh, to build blockchains? Uh, I've been conspiring to build really bad ideas on a blockchain for fun. That seems to be your modus operandi, my friend. Uh, let's uh, let's see how bad of an idea we can come up with. That's, uh, that's certainly performance art. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've got some good ones. I'll uh, I'll tell you more when they're ready. Oh, foreshadowing. I like the sound of that. Well, uh, without further ado, let's get on with the news. So the first story comes from newsbtc.com and uh, from Credit Suisse. Uh, an executive there has said banking culture hinders blockchain adoption. And is this an opportunity for crypto? Emmanuel Ledu, who's the head of digital market assets for Credit Suisse, has stated uh, it is banking culture that has so far slowed the adoption of blockchain technology in the financial industry. What's preventing the banking industry from rushing into it, he says? Uh, I think it's mostly culture. I think the tipping point is about having an entrepreneurial culture, a willingness to push people and to keep asking why. Edu continued to highlight the current stagnation in the banking industry and how it risked being left behind by financial innovation occurring in less traditional avenues, such as crypto. And he says it's really important for companies to have people who challenge themselves to ask questions about the status quo. These are the people who focus on change, not change for change's sake, but an honest reflection on why are we doing things and can we do things better? Um, interesting one here, Colin. What were your reflections on this one? Uh, really interesting one. And I thought it was uh, it was refreshing to see uh, Emmanuel talk, talk this way. Um, I absolutely agree. And at the same time, I, I think that there's slightly more to it. Um, so on the culture aspect and looking abroad, um, I, I think it's no surprise to anybody that has worked in a bank or currently works in a bank that banks are very conservative machines. Um, some of that's for very good reason of looking at the risks that are out there and um, trying to protect the money that they watch after for clients. Um, so that part's good. The second thing is um, I think that there's the really bad part, which is sometimes they do need to take small risks in a controlled kind of uh, DMZ kind of way. And they're not very good at doing that. Everybody likes to do paralysis by analysis. So finding finding ways that you can do the, do these things that test an idea and giving people to test that uh, would be, I think, beneficial. The other thing um, is that, that he kind of hit on with that unconventional avenues, which I think is really interesting. And this is a conversation that I have a lot, which is what is actually happening in crypto? We talk a lot about blockchain, 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 um, but what's actually being developed? And a lot of it is not production ready, which is cool. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting experiments that I like. Um, we talked about Maker a bit, and I think we're going to talk a bit more about it in the future. But that's a really kind of cool thing. I don't think it works for banks, um, but it's definitely something to be watching. And I think there's uh, a lot of things there where banks have been watching and learning uh, from crypto for, for quite some time, uh, but they've not necessarily uh, done all that much with it, with a few notable exceptions. Um, you know, the, we talked about the uh, the large one-off bond issuances that are coming from, uh, from SOCGEN and from BBVA, uh, but these are still kind of one-off. Um, you are also seeing some examples of you know, trade finance bits of work here, there, and around the edges. 
But uh, Emmanuel's core point is, you know, there's a, there's a the lack of progress in this is symptomatic of a broader problem that goes beyond just crypto. Um, there's there's this is just banks generally do struggle to innovate. Um, and interestingly, it's not really been for the lack of trying. Uh, you know, banks have spent. Something like an average of uh, you know, a couple of billion for the top 20 banks on their IT budgets annually. But when you look at that, 90% of that budget is just keeping the lights on. And the 10% of the budget that's quote unquote innovation is really just keeping up with the Joneses. And then you get like a tiny fraction of their innovation budget that is actually moving the needle forward. So, you know, if, if and then you consider that in order to get that stuff live, let's say you go do a really interesting proof of concept. To get that to a customer, you've got to take that through the the risk of a sausage machine that is bureaucratic and, and slow and rightly so, because it's got potentially millions of customers, tens of billions, trillions of, of daily volume. Like you as a customer don't want that thing to fall over. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, something that, that you often talk about is um, when you come up with these ideas, maybe just treat them as a startup would and, and don't reintegrate it into every single thing you're doing. If you need a project that handles five customers, rather than putting it back in the sausage machine, just build it all the way up so it can handle that by itself. It's interesting that um, if you wind the clock back sort of two, 300 years when a lot of these banks were starting out, they didn't try and deliver something to all of their customers at once. Uh, every product starts with a small handful of customers. So why is it that when banks create new products or start to use a new technology, they try and do it with all customers at once. I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that their systems are were built to serve a lot of customers. They digitized paper processes. They took that paper process that was mass production grade and put that on IBM mainframes. They never built it to A-B test and segment customers and to, to test and learn and to, to iterate. So it's really hard for them to do it as one part. And another part is you know, they were sort of rising and falling with the economy. Like banks do well when the economy does well. Banks didn't do as well when the economy didn't do as well. And that worked for a time. They were kind of consistently growing, consistently profitable. But I think the world's changed now. You see the big techs starting to really enter and, and look at you know, the Apples and the Googles of the world, especially Apple, really coming into that consumer space. Amazon can, coming into that consumer space in, in a big, big way. And then you've got the fintechs you know, snapping at the heels. You can see the big bankers talking about their brand and trust, but how are they going to grow? Um, because can their business really be about sustaining what they've got? You know, like where does growth come from, especially with a cap markets context? And and I think that's a really interesting point, and particularly applicable within something like retail or or transactional banking. Um, I mean, where I used to work, they did a lot of structured products, and and they liked to pride themselves on how flexible a lot of their systems were. So you really did make one-off things for absolutely everything, and the margins were massive because of it. Um, but it, it really depends on what you're trying to create um, and, and what your business is set up for. And I don't know that it's always a systems issue because some of these systems for the last 20 years have been very flexible and becoming even more so. But again, that we're talking about how do you iterate within sustainable innovation versus something, uh, quote unquote, disruptive, where you're actually ripping out the rails and starting again. Um, and I think because of the large investments that have been made and because of the differences that need to be done at that foundational level, it starts to come back into your point of um, 
making that the rest of the architecture more flexible. It, it is going to be uh, interesting to see how these things start to come to life. I don't know if you saw, but the uh, Financial Conduct Authority in the UK just announced its uh, Cohort 5 uh, sandbox participants, which includes some really interesting organizations and some big banks. Um, so it has uh, you know, the likes of Evanim and Uport and Onfido um, working together on various different uh, kind of really interesting fintech-y things um, around DLT and blockchain. But they have the London Stock Exchange Group doing their listing and trading venues for uh, the issuance, admission, and trading of equity securities. And I think the um, the examples like uh, the post office are in there doing some interesting things. Examples like those sandboxes do give you a place where a regulated entity that is worried about how the regulator will react kind of has this space to innovate in that, that's that's a little bit different. But really, it comes down to you know, how are these organizations going to find growth? I looked at the... Um, annual reports of uh, the top 10 banks in Europe, um, because I'm that cool. And uh, what I found was, across all of them, none of them could attribute any any material uh, growth in their business to, quote-unquote, innovation. A lot of them talked it up. It was the first thing on the investor deck was the shiny thing that they've done. But then when you drill into the numbers, none of their growth is coming from innovation. It's coming from somewhere else. So to talk a good game about innovation, but to actually get material growth from it, I think are two different things. But this comes back to the, the culture aspect. Most banks think of innovation of how do I save money rather than how do I make more. Um, in the context of disruptive innovation, quote unquote. And maybe that's the thing that needs to change. And maybe that's why none of them can actually attribute growth because none of them actually bother to look for it. I also think it's this myth of digital transformation. Um, it's something that the bigger consultancies have been selling for quite some time. This is the idea that you can take a, a 60, 70-year-old athlete and somehow with enough AI and blockchain, you're going to win the Olympics. And I'm sorry, but there's no amount of AI that helps the 70-year-old win the Olympics. What they need to do a blockchain clearly could. I mean, look at the name of the show. Um, but but like, imagine if that aging athlete with all of their experience was actually helping a younger athlete to grow a new business. That is the best use of a legacy business and an incumbent is how do I grow new businesses with all of this experience and knowledge that I've got, but do something truly differently that grows a new culture and grows the next generation. And, you know, this has been done. Uh, General Electric uh, were, were not a software business. Now more than 50% of their revenue comes from software. There are lots of case studies where growing lots of internal new businesses can actually be done. But so often it seems to be you know, the same people that have a day job, they have some side of desk thing, and then they run this pretend innovation thing internally where there's like investment councils. But actually, that's very different. Like if you quit your job and there's no money coming in unless you go and make that money, the way you behave day to day is very, very different than if you've got a cushy corporate job and off the side of your desk you're doing this innovation thing. So it's about that fire and and like commercial focus. I think how can how can banks really start to create that? And I don't know how you do that when everybody's got a day job too. So you should fire them all. Indeed. Well, this is what uh, Emmanuel's talking about uh, when he says that entrepreneurial culture is critical. How do you create the environment for that entrepreneurial culture? You know, if you think about it, that startups are small teams of highly experienced people who've been there and done something like it before or just have enough passion to want to go out and do it by themselves. Those people absolutely exist inside of financial services companies and a lot of them spin out and do, you know, like how many um, blockchain startups or fintech startups 
startups can you think of that are ex-bankers that are now you know sort of found a lead? It happens quite often. Like financial services is a specialist subject where you need that knowledge. Insurance too, lots of other industries as well. So this is going to be one that, that keeps running. But you know, with blockchain specifically, is there a bit of an image problem now? Like I, I tend to go to conferences and somebody mentions blockchain and, and the whole room sort of groans at this point. It, does it does it have that? I, I think it does, and that's a good thing. It's a, this is the traffic disillusion. We're at the bottom now. Everywhere is up from here. <laughs> it, well, it's up or it's like death. Like uh, the, maybe it's dead. I don't know. That's fine. The slope of enlightenment doesn't always happen. Right? Um, it doesn't always happen. But I, I, it's really good to not go to conferences and hear people talk about like really painful issues and go, "Yeah, but a blockchain's going to fix that, right?" Yeah. Uh, it's they'll go, "Oh, yeah, that doesn't do anything," and like it's like. Oh, I need. I have a problem where I can't trust a single party, and I need some kind of censorship resistance. If only there was a technology that could handle that. I mean, they don't use those words because they don't know what that means. But uh, it, it's you're starting to see like <laughs> all of the bad ideas go away, and all the expectations, and then maybe some things that might work starting to happen. Maybe indeed, or at least learnings from those. A definite, definite hype cycle uh, in progress. If you've not seen the Gartner hype cycle, I envy you. Um, already, uh, next story comes from Reuters. Um, Jaguar Land Rover are planning to allow helpful car drivers to earn cryptocurrency. Um, so they're testing software that will allow drivers of its cars to earn IOTA as a reward for sharing data. The company is developing what it calls smart wallet technology to be installed in its automobiles. Um, whoever the author of this was on Reuters, um, thank you for using an oldie-timey word like automobiles. Really appreciate that. Uh, this would reward Jaguar car drivers with IOTA coins for actions such as enabling their vehicles to automatically re uh, report useful data, such as traffic congestion or potholes, to providers or local authorities. Drivers could also earn rewards if the car participates in a ride-sharing program. The IOTA co-founder Dominic Schneider um, says IOTA wants to enable interoperability with all of these different players. So there's no Jaguar coin, no BMW coin, but one universal token for the machine economy. Like, I don't dislike the concept, but uh, IOTA has not been without its controversy. Do you want to just back up and explain who IOTA is? Well, first, I want to say I hate the idea. Like I said a moment ago, the bad ideas are gone, but uh, they're, they're clearly not. So I take it back. I'm sorry. Um, IOTA is a IoT-focused uh, blockchain with cryptocurrency, which happens to be a blockchain that doesn't actually use the cryptocurrency aspects of that cryptocurrency for anything other than raising money for the founding team and, and helping them get even richer. Um, I say that kind of flippantly, but... Um, when you look at how this thing works, the idea is it's supposed to be somehow focused to IoT devices. Um, I am not an IoT expert, but from my understanding, from talking to people that are, most IoT devices are really, really smart, small things like a debit card with some kind of computer in it. Um, and this is quite large uh, things that need like five gigabytes to run. So it may work inside of a car. I'm not 100% sure why cars would need to be talking to other cars rather than a, something like a centralized database. So they talk about how you could get paid for ride sharing. Um, I can think of one very large American application that allows drivers around the world to do such things and doesn't need a blockchain. Um, I think the idea here is going true, true peer to peer. Um, so like uh, the, a lot of the 
issues that people have raised with Uber being sort of exploiting drivers for wages and paying them the least possible amount. Um, you know, the original idea of ride sharing was that it was ride sharing, not um, human capital exploitation, which it sadly sort of moved towards. And then uh, there's there's another concept. So stepping back to the IoT and the machine economy piece, uh, IOTA has this concept it calls the tangle. Uh, and the idea here is that uh, any given device uh, must be validated by the two nearest it, and they only see a piece of uh, the, the validation network. Nobody has the entire thing, so it creates it's this web or, or tangle that they, they describe, which is a pretty interesting concept, but it's not really been tested at scale, so we don't know if this thing's secure or robust. It might be, it might not. There's certainly been a number of audits that people have done and gone, mm, we're not so sure about ABC, which IOTA came out and pushed back against quite quite hard, um, and some might say in, in, in an almost juvenile way, but that's besides the point. You can see why a car manufacturer would want to um, get that data. You can see why, from a consumer standpoint, it's nicer to have somebody pay me for access to that data than somebody just take it. Um, so I can see value going there. Sort of reminds me of what the guys are doing with the Brave browser. Um, so you, Brave has now launched the ability to pay you, the consumer, to watch the adverts instead of um, the uh, sort of ad economy working now where you're the product being sold. Uh, I like this idea that increased privacy, increased control over your data, uh, and being rewarded for sharing that, it's a good concept. It says that I do, in fact, own that data. But it's doing so on a technology platform that's largely unproven with a business model that hasn't proven itself to be more uh, successful or efficient than top-down centralized databases. The, the big criticism, of course, though, of the top-down centralized databases if I hack that service, I've hacked everyone's car. Something like Tangle would be, in theory, harder to hack. Well, or if you're able to hack it, then it permeates through everybody else's machine, whereas with a centralized server, you could isolate it. My, so my issue here is like, okay, fine. If for some reason you find a reason why you actually need a blockchain and you want these cars to communicate with each other, the fact that it's being like, it's only under testing. So the fact that it could be de facto installed means that you don't have any of these promises. You just have to rely on the one option you have or none at all. If you wanted to do this, a more intelligent way would be to have some kind of phone application that you would download and would plug into your car and receive that information and data from your car and only send via your phone. And for sharing it, you could actually control that. Whether you need a blockchain or not, I don't know. Um, but by putting this stuff out anyways, yeah, it's lovely that Jaguar says, look, it's your data. But the fact that anybody that plugs into this blockchain can see it doesn't really mean that. It just means anybody can see it. And maybe you're the only one that has a private key to change it. Yeah, and I think um, it's, it's a really good point. I actually like the use case a lot more than I like that they used a blockchain. Um, I like the idea of somebody owning their data. I like the idea of somebody being able to monetize their own data. I like the idea of peer-to-peer -peer ride sharing. I think all of those are interesting for, for, for good reasons. Um, but I, with all of these things, the, the killer question of, yes, but why on a blockchain? Yes, but why on um, interesting cryptography where I've got an audit trail? That's powerful. Yeah, sure. Um, let's have a Kafka log where um, you know there are multiple auditor nodes and and these things are published to to multiple places and there's you know there's there's observers in that network. Sure, but yeah, the argument for why Tangle I think is less uh, less clear. Yeah, I mean to me this just feels like uh, let's pump our coin prices up some more. Yeah, unfortunately so. Although um, I can see it from the uh, 
the car uh, brand's perspective, uh, Jaguar, BMW, and others, uh, if I'm them, I'm looking at both Uber and Tesla and thinking, you know, those guys are really coming in for uh, commoditizing the car production process in much the way that Apple and Google commoditize the handset manufacturers and the MNOs, uh, having this uh, ability to have, you know, the ability to completely move, um, replacing your car with your phone. Uh, it, it could be... Um, it could be something that if I'm one of those guys, I'm really concerned about. Uh, Alrighty, next story comes from thenextweb.com and Nike's crypto kicks trademark application hints at new blockchain ambitions. Ooh. So Nike has submitted a trademark application for the word crypto kicks, signaling that it may be gearing up to launch its own digital currency and a host of crypto related products. The application filed on April 19, 2019 outlines how the company's proposed digital currency could be used by an online community. The document also describes an online footwear and clothing marketplace, as well as a website featuring technology that enables users to mine, earn, purchase, receive, and by any other means, store, transfer, blockchain-based tokens, coins, cryptocurrencies, and other crypto assets. Um, Nike said its digital business drew in more than a billion dollars in quarterly sales for the first time last year, representing a 36% rise. Why would Nike do this, Colin? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, maybe as a marketing ploy? Um yeah, although it's interesting, this is a patent application, not a marketing release, so it's definitely not Kodak Coin. But a lot of people, I mean, a lot of companies go out and they issue uh, patents. If you have patent officers working in a large company like surely Nike would, uh, it can't cost them very much. Yeah, and, and that's actually uh, an interesting defensive mechanism that a lot of organizations use is if they're worried somebody else is going to do this thing and then patent troll them for that, they go out and get a lot of uh, patents. There was a um, there was the example of Google buying uh, Motorola just to get their patents um, so that they could defend against a lawsuit. Um, it kind of, uh, this is uh, this is something that, that could be the case. I can imagine a world in which, um, you know, increasingly with um, sneaker freaks and sneaker drops, you've got this massive second gray economy um, and secondhand market for, uh, for sneaks now that uh, Nike's getting nothing from. And actually, uh, there's a, a much bigger after-value market in a lot of what they're creating from some of the scarcity uh, than there is in the real-world economy. So, how does how does Nike produce a platform whereby they're they're maintaining provenance of these things and they're able to demonstrate provenance of those things? All interesting questions to which the answer I don't know is necessarily a blockchain, but still, you can see why somebody would put those two together. Uh, they could, I mean, I'm, I'm reading the patent application. They could do a lot of these things without actually needing a blockchain and you could have something that still resembles a token and one-way cryptography. I think token and one-way cryptography is is an absolutely, you know, is a massively compelling idea for that. Um, why it needs a, a blockchain as such, I'm not entirely sure, um, but... You know, the patent application does does mention providing online chat rooms for the shoes, apparently. Yeah, I, look, I, I think the proposition for customers makes a ton of sense. Um, but hey, who knows? The technology may change. And, and this is my general feeling. I think the technology, a lot of these use cases that make sense um, will probably change their tech stack between now and then, uh, now and it ever going live already. Um, the, best, the best part, if, before we move on, in the patent application, curated scavenger hunts. Wow, uh, I think we have an episode title. Um, 
<laughs> Listener, this episode is brought to you by R3, and apparently it's been a big year for R3, the enterprise software firm behind Corda. Um, Corda is apparently fast becoming the gold standard in enterprise blockchain technology uh, because it's an out-of-the-box blockchain platform built specifically for business that comes with two versions, open source and enterprise, both completely interoperable and compatible. You can get uh, started on Corda open source and easily migrate to enterprise as your business requirements evolve. The Corda platform offers the best of both worlds and it's backed by a vibrant community of over 200 application builders and consumers. You can download Corda open source on GitHub today or you can visit r3.com to download Corda Enterprise on a trial basis. Shout out to friend of the show, Todd McDonald. Alrighty, uh, on with the news. Uh, there's been some crypto drama, Colin. Um, Bitfinex uh, covered $850 million loss using tether funds, according to the New York prosecutors. The New York Attorney General's office has alleged that crypto exchange Bitfinex lost uh, $850 million and subsequently used funds from affiliated stablecoin operator Tether to secretly cover the shortfall. Bitfinex allegedly sent $850 million of consumer and corporate funds to Crypto Capital Corp, a payments processor that is said to be holding funds from other exchanges as well as Quadringo CX. Funds from Tether's reserve were used to make up the shortfall, but the neither the loss nor Tether's fund movements were disclosed to customers. So far, more than $600 million is alleged to have been transferred. So Colin, turns out blockchains make everything transparent. You can be your own bank. No more financial crises and misdealings. Oh, wait. Well, so this one's fun for a lot of reasons for me. Um, uh, so you, you pointed out one of them. Um, Tether has been getting heat for a long time about possibly not having all the money behind it. Um, but what was quite funny is when Bitfinex, for some reason, couldn't get their own money, uh, it seemed like Tether could come up with the goods. So either that says at one point they were fully capitalized, uh, and then maybe they're not anymore because Bitfinex has it all. Uh, the reason that Bitfinex uh, needed that shortfall uh, was the even better part was, although that money apparently is completely safe, according to Bitfinex, it is uh, seized in a Polish bank uh, in an ongoing uh uh, ongoing uh, investigation on money laundering, something to do with uh, the mafia in Russia or something like that. I could be getting that one wrong, but uh, some some dirty funds, and, and this is getting mixed up with it at the Polish bank, allegedly, uh, and they are investigating as a result, they've seized that bank account. Bitfinex and Tether say, don't worry about it. Bitfinex just needed the cash for short term. You're good to go. They wrote us um, something to to cover that loan. Uh, I saw some pictures of it. It was signed from the same people on both sides. So that's always great to see. Um, and and then because, um, of course, they don't need money and everybody's good to go and it's just being held safe by the Polish investigators, um, they also have announced that they will be doing a $900 million, very convenient, IEO or initial exchange offering, meaning they're going to sell tokens on their own exchange for tokens on their own exchange. Well done, everyone. <laughs> wow. Be your own bank. Um, Be your own bank. And if you can't, let somebody else do it for you poorly. Wow. Uh, let's move on. Uh, story comes from the New York Times. Uh, after the bust, Bitcoins are more like tulip mania or the internet. Uh, which are they? So uh, Nate um, Popper here uh, goes. It has quite a long piece about uh, sort of the, the narrative of Bitcoin and how it's really evolved. After last year's bust, Bitcoin users are generally sending somewhere between $400 million and $800 million worth of Bitcoin across the network every day, although there's a question about how much of that is real. Um, speculative 
transactions account for roughly 60 to 80% of all transactions, and data suggests that drug purchases account for a much larger proportion of the Bitcoin economy um, than the, their proportion of the dollar economy. And Bitcoin has enabled new kinds of deadly drug, drug traffic, like uh, synthetic opioids that have flow, uh, flowed from China to small towns in the United States. Um, really, really killer piece here from uh, Nate, where uh, he uses facts and data to basically say, look, there's there's still a dark side here that we have to be very cognizant of. Um, and there's, uh, uh, there's, there's potentially uh, you know, a lot of potential behind the technology, but let's not try and um, just rubbish the fact that there are real human costs to uh, the misuse of Bitcoin and some of the uh, some of the kind of digital marketplaces that are out there as well. Yeah, and okay, so I dig it up on my libertarian soapbox because I'm not going to apologize for the fact that Bitcoin's being used for drugs and say that it's still very small compared to the dollar because Bitcoin's much smaller than the dollar. Um, so yes, it is larger um, because that's where Bitcoin tends to work. Um, and my libertarian soapbox aspect here would be if that's what it's working well for, I mean, that's that's where your learning should be. Not that you can send money around the world. It's that people can't stop you from sending money around the world. So do financial regulators have something to learn from that? Do drug enforcement agencies have something to learn from that? I think so. Um, and it's maybe control the post system where these things are coming from. Um, maybe strengthen that part of the border rather than other ones. Um, if If people in Venezuela are buying this, Maybe some of it's purely speculative. Maybe some of it's to protect those savings. Maybe that's something to learn from. I'm not saying the United States or Europe or anywhere else is going through necessarily the same situation, but it's not impossible. It's probably very, very unlikely, but it's not impossible to imagine that uh, high or uh, hyperinflation could eventually return. Um, why don't we look at some of those aspects? Now, on the speculative aspect, uh, I don't know how he got these numbers, but I'm sure that it is probably not unrealistic to believe it's within those realms, which we've talked about for a long time. He does, though, um, sort of move on and say, look, there's a future here. Uh, he talks about Ethereum, dApps, and Facebook. Um, whilst the technology hasn't um, gained traction with ordinary people, doesn't mean it won't someday. Um, there are plenty of areas where smart entrepreneurs think the open nature of cryptocurrencies could be useful. Um, many venture capitalists are betting on those next generation platforms that we talk about a lot. Um, programmers are building these, uh, the, the idea of decentralized applications that can move money around and record ownership of digital goods like items in video games without a central company keeping those records. For example, if that video game uh, was no longer around, then the digital goods that you bought, um, you no longer own because the centralized server disappeared. Um, but the majority of those dApps still focus on gray zones. Um, he uh, also talks about uh, Facebook. We don't really know what they're doing. Um, apparently, they're working on their own digital tokens, um, as are other big messaging companies. He finishes with this point, which is he can't predict the future of um, cryptocurrencies any more than the holdout of dreamers or naysayers. But with serious money still finding the way into the market, it's still too early to write the whole thing off. And I think that is... The balance point here is like there's still an awful lot to learn and it's still way too early to write this stuff off, even though we've, we've kind of been through a, a year where the default reaction of people now is to write this stuff off. But that's our trough of disillusionment, right? This is this is the good the good times. 
this is where something gets done. This is the fun bit. Speaking of uh, fun bits, um, story from Cointelegraph that we didn't have time to cover. RGA Ventures are partnering with local blockchain firms to create a blockchain venture. Uh, the next web dot com JD uh, JD.com says putting chicken on the blockchain was great for business. Um, we actually did an episode titled Chickens on a Blockchain, and uh, it looks like it's worked. Although, I don't know if it's putting on the blockchain that's really worked. Um, the, the, the idea that you've ha- got some proof that these are ethically sourced chickens and consumers believe that seems to have increased sales rather than you used a technology, but I could be wrong. Or everybody's just talking about how dumb of an idea it was and that, that got more mm. hits. Um, CryptoDaily.co.uk, uh, Liberland. Uh, initiates decentralized autonomous government with EOS IO. Wow. Um, and from Reuters.com, Hamas shifts tactics in Bitcoin fundraising, highlighting crypto risks, uh, according to the research. I mean, yeah, crypto. Wow. Um, now it's time for our Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Twitter of the Week comes from the one and only Elon Musk, who tweeted simply, Ethereum. Vitalik Buterin then replied, you should come to our DevCon in October. And Elon Musk replied, stop giving away free ETH. Uh, <laughs> this we, we missed the tweet in here immediately after Elon's first Ethereum tweet. He responded just saying simply, JK. Yeah, just kidding. Um, this is this is a guy who uh, has definitely had some run-ins with the SEC, uh, not unlike the crypto community. Definitely had a lot of Bitcoin scammers on his tail. Seemed to find the whole thing quite amusing and just to periodically uh, put the word Bitcoin out there um, and uh, yeah, is, is mocking the the scams a little bit. Um, but my goodness, uh, just. Just he, he seems to have an ability to uh, to just know how Twitter works and get the whole community to pay attention to a thing like nobody else. He's he's just a super Twitter troll. I'm very impressed. Indeed. Uh, alrighty. Um, coming up for our interview. Um, so before we get to that interview, uh, Colin, uh, you briefly covered the delisting of BSV and all that drama a couple of weeks back, but we thought we'd dig into it a little bit more. You had a chat with the one and only Stephen Pally to give us the lowdown. Um, how did that chat go? Uh, really interesting. Um, it, it goes kind of starts with a BSV and then gets into a little bit more about what it is to be listing these things and some of the things you need to think about. Um, it's it's not legal advice, but there's some interesting legal stuff in there to consider. So if you've heard of uh, Bitcoin BSV, if you've heard of people claiming to be um, certain Bitcoin creators and alleging um, libel and, and other good things, this is going to be an interesting one for you for sure. So take a listen. All right. I am joined here by Mr. Stephen Paley, partner at Anderson Kill and co-chair of the firm's Blockchain and Virtual Currency Practice Group. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here, Colin. Always enjoy chatting with you. Always enjoy having you on. It has been a little while. Um, We we had a conversation about uh, some interesting things that have happened in the market. And without uh, getting into the more uh, (laughs) vicious details of... um, Bitcoin uh, Satoshi's vision or BSV as it's known by its ticker symbol. There was a really interesting conversation you and I had about um, exchanges listing the power they may have uh, and talking about centralized exchanges like Binance or Coinbase or others. Um, Can you share us a bit about um, the background and how you think about uh, exchanges, their role in the market and, and maybe ongoing requirements. And of course, I, I must note, uh, you are a lawyer, but you are not our lawyer, and this is not a legal advice, right? 
Right. These are my own opinions. They're opinions only. Um, I contain multitudes. I might change my mind. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud. So if I offend someone, I'm sorry. Don't take it personally. It's an evolving space. And I'm um, part of what we're doing is musing on the impact of, uh, of the relationship between um, old laws and new technology. Absolutely. So the question I had when I saw, I thought it was interesting. A few weeks ago, we saw uh, the CEOs of two major exchanges taking a position about uh, dispute over who Satoshi is. And as we know, there's a, a gentleman um, from Australia, now I believe living in England, who has stated recently and rather unequivocally that he is Satoshi and other people, including a, um, uh, a, a tweet, um, an anonymous Twitter user who goes by the name Hoddlenot, and a, um, an English uh, fellow who has um, a uh, series of, um, of podcasts, Peter McCormick, have both taken a strong position that uh, this gentleman is, is not Satoshi and have used um, rather colorful language to, um, to emphasize their belief. And so weighing into this, we saw on Twitter to the heads of two exchanges basically saying if, um, if this fellow, Mr. Wright, doesn't back down, uh, we will delist uh, BSV or Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, which is um, basically a fork of, I believe it's a fork of Bitcoin Cash, right, which is itself um, a fork of Bitcoin uh, from their exchanges. And I, what I thought was interesting, let's set aside, like, we go into greater detail uh, but like setting aside the uh, sort of legal implications across the entire world of doing that, it's really interesting to see one of the things that uh, Jesse Power from Kraken did was, um, I don't know if Power did it from his own account. It might have been from the Kraken account. They did a poll on Twitter to say, to quote unquote, gauge community interest as to whether or not BSV should be removed. And, uh, you know, majority of the of the people, allegedly, who responded allegedly because we all know that Twitter polls are, are scientific said it should be delisted and they did. And I'm not saying that Kraken lists securities or that it's an exchange as that's defined under the securities act. But if it were, uh, we would certainly be surprised to see NASDAQ saying, um, you know, doing a Twitter survey to delist um, a security. And I know people are, people are hearing this are going to say, well, it's not the same thing. Um, but I think that maybe I'm not sure that's an entirely foregone conclusion. So I thought that the use of social media by these uh, by these uh, CEOs of exchanges to talk about to weigh in on uh, a dispute in crypto land and to make a decision that has actually probably a significant financial impact uh, to people who who hold the asset. I thought it was fascinating. Fascinating is is one way I would characterize that. So I, I think that there's a couple of interesting things that you you alluded in, into. So this came about um, not only based off of proof whether somebody is or isn't who they claim to be, um, but actually serving um, or threatening uh, legal proceedings uh, under UK libel laws uh, right. for potentially defaming this individual. Um, and and I guess the the outrage that people are seeing is based off of my understanding of I'm not a lawyer either and definitely not in the UK. My understanding of the UK libel laws is they're slightly different than perhaps uh, their corresponding uh, laws in the United States. Um, perhaps 
more suited to the the plaintiff uh, or the person bringing the charges, um, whereas the defendant has to kind of prove that they were right and the person is not Satoshi in this case, potentially. Yeah, I'm not a UK lawyer in the United States. Um, truth is a, a defense and the plaintiff has to prove, among other things, it's more complicated than this, they have to prove the statement was was false. In the UK, I believe that that's, uh, that's different. And there is uh, much more of an onus on the defendant to prove that what they're saying was or wasn't true. Um, interestingly, in fact, uh, because people were using the UK as sort of a, a, a place to, um, to file uh, defamation cases, the United States, actually, we have a law that makes it difficult uh, to enforce a defamation judgment uh, if the judgment was entered in a jurisdiction that has uh, basically different laws or more onerous laws that that might chill speech, but it's it's um if if you think about it from the standpoint of somebody who simply bought BSV uh, to invest and either you know hope that it appreciates in value, what we saw after these announcements was that the value of the asset dropped and it dropped precipitously. It is certainly if I were a plaintiff's class action lawyer. I, I would certainly be thinking about um, the responsibility of someone who runs an exchange to do or not do things that might um, have an adverse financial impact on people who have invested in assets listed on that exchange. Now, I don't know offhand what the, I guess the question is, there are a couple of questions. One question is, well, would BSV have, have had the same value if it hadn't been listed on Binance or Kraken? How did the listing happen? The listing happened as a matter of course after the after the fork? Uh, right. As I recall, yes, it was. Um, they had gauged that there was enough interest in a when, when it would fork, that there was enough interest in the BSV asset. To that, it would meet the ongoing listing requirements from right. Binance and Kraken. Kraken did signal at the time, if I if I recall correctly, that uh, normally, uh, according to their criteria, they wouldn't have listed BSV, but they made an exception. So it's a little bit different than somebody coming to an exchange and saying, um, like the PTK Foundation, let's say, goes to an exchange and says, "We want you to list PTK." Um, and in doing so, the exchange actually effectively creates an order book and it creates value. It's it's different than that fact pattern. Uh, I well, that's tough. Um, so if we look at the Ethereum Classic uh, split in 2016, um, it was argued from a technical point of view and a, a liquidity uh, economics point of view that uh, the asset otherwise would have been valueless. Um, Ethereum's had multiple hard forks. Most of those forked off assets of the old legacy chains just disappeared. It was different in the time of Ethereum Classic after the split from the DAO hard fork um, because there was a large contingent of people or a large enough contingent of people apparently that uh, felt that that was a wrong decision and wanted to maintain the legacy chain which didn't include the bailing out the, the DAO investors which were uh, about 15% of the total investment base if I recall correctly. Um, there were some accusations that um, some large investors uh, of that coin that bought them or mined them essentially for free also were large investors in some of these exchanges and and helped create that market and, and create that value that otherwise would have been very difficult to express. 
So, I mean, a, a slightly analogous but kind of interesting question would be what happens, what are the obligations of an exchange when it lists a brand new token and it takes money to, to list it, uh, it receives money to list it, um, it creates a, a market that induces people to invest and then it decides for whatever reason that it doesn't want to list it anymore. In that quite, it, if we were talking about securities, there is actual there are actually established cri- listing criteria that exchanges follow, and they are ultimately subject to oversight by the SEC. Um, so, you know, I know that if I buy something that's listed, I understand that it might be delisted, but I know it's not going to happen because the head of Nasdaq runs a Twitter survey. Like to me, that whatever you think of BSV, whatever you think of Craig Wright, the idea that this decentralized, quote unquote, decentralized technology, magic, crypto money, you know, freedom for everyone and magical fairy dust. The fact is, it's basically controlled by three or four guys, as far as I can tell. I think that there's there's two or three different things packed into the the idea of whether there's any assumed immutability um, and how centralized the the market price is. Um, it, it is completely possible uh, to use a cryptocurrency and for it to have value when there are no exchanges. Bitcoin had a few years that it, it managed to run when there were no exchanges at all before Mt. Gox. Well, so, but let's talk about that from a sort of mark-to-market standpoint or, or a fiat liquidity standpoint. The reason that it, people were able to value it in dollars were because of things like, um, what do you call it, uh, local Bitcoins, right? There were actually, there were, if it was in 2011, if I wanted dollars for my Bitcoin, how did I get them? Uh, you met, well, before the first time, uh, you, you gave somebody some Bitcoin, 10,000 Bitcoin, and they gave you two pizzas. Right, I mean, that, right, right, right. But that, that took, what, a year of Bitcoin's existence before it, it had any monetary value. And that was the first mark to market that we gave to Bitcoin, right? Uh, and then it took another six months for there to be an exchange. In between, I would imagine um, that what you saw later in 2011, which was actually people meeting up and transferring cash, like $20 bills to right. buy a thousand Bitcoin, that, that's how you would trade it. Right. So the question, of course, it's true that uh, that Bitcoin can be used without exchanging it for dollars. And I personally think that out of all of the cryptocurrency out there, I think Bitcoin is the most interesting. Um, It always has been to me, and that remains the case. But all of the other things that are listed on exchanges are um, ultimately, if you look at coinmarket.com, or if you look at, I I think Masari does the same thing. If you look at places where these things are valued, they're generally valued in fiat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a little bit off the track of what we we're talking about, but I guess my what I come back to when I think about um, cryptocurrency exchange CEOs weighing in on um, on litigation disputes and deciding what to list or not list based on part of my language or whatever the fuck they feel like, uh, or on Twitter surveys, which we know those things are not scientific. And saying that those things reflect the views of the community is just utter fucking bullshit. So what I would say is if you really believe in and support the space, this is an, and you also think that there is a value in being able to trade this stuff for dollars so that you can, you know, pay your mortgage or, you know, buy a milkshake or buy eggs uh, or, you know, give money to 11FS for consulting services. Um, 
it it would be nice to have a little bit more i would say the reason why you see pushback on regulatory certainty from people like maybe CZ who goes to Malta or Jesse who leaves New York and compares New York to being a girlfriend who won't leave you alone is because they want to be able to do whatever they want. So is it, I look at that and I think, well, meet the old boss, same as the new boss, right? Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Got that backwards. <laughs> Got it backwards. <laughs> need a little bit more coffee. That's my take. No, but I, I, I think that's very accurate. And I think given the volatility of these, it's, it's even more, Exaggerated, but when we were talking, I, I was trying to figure out: does does okay? So let's put aside the the argument that BSV or any of these other cryptocurrencies could be a security and would need to follow the same rules as a security. Let's pretend that it was a commodity, or hey, maybe even a consumer product um, like a car. Mm-hmm. Um, cars have a secondary mar- market value. Um, let's assume theoretically that there was a a large um, uh, car repair chain across the United States and uh, a popular car from a Japanese manufacturing uh, company was widely sold in the US over several years. And then all of a sudden, um, this large repair company said, we've got 10% of the market. We disagree with this Japanese company. Uh, we're not going to fix those cars anymore. What what would the situation be like? That I would assume that would make the secondary value of these cars drop and maybe even the the primary issuance as well um what what fact might that have from a legal perspective where would complaints potentially come from where would they be more easily argued where would they be less easily argued um i don't think it's a really terribly good analogy but the no no fast sorry i don't i don't see a direct it's hard to go from that to saying because you decided to get out of this market and that impacted the value of the cars, you're responsible for the diminution in value of the cars. I could see, depending on the facts, depending on the contracts that issue, some sort of uh, consumer complaint about representations that were made regarding availability or future availability of uh, repair services, uh, maybe some sort of consumer class action depending on the facts and circumstances, but I think it's a little bit different. It's true. Just because you delist something, a product doesn't mean that you are responsible to people who own that product for its, uh, for loss of its value um, in trade. One thing doesn't necessarily fall, uh, follow from another, but the, the thing about a car though, is people don't necessarily, for the most part, pe- people don't buy those things to trade them. They buy them to drive them. The reason why people bought BSV, I would surmise, maybe we should do a Twitter poll about this. For the most part, I'm sure that there's some people who bought it because they believe in it. And, you know, uh, that's fine. You believe whatever you want. Um, but most people bought it because they thought it would go up in value or they thought it would go down. But they're betting on um, on, on velocity one way or the other. That, that's the entire purpose for 95% of the people who buy this stuff. And obviously, I pulled 95% out of the air, but the substantial majority of people buy this stuff because they hope it'll go up. In value, right? When moon, sir? I mean, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. So I, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here, no, and, and I, I agree uh, on your point regarding cars having an underlying value. And that's uh, actually I, I'm trying to go down this route because one of the interesting thing that 
Craig Wright has been saying, or sorry, our Australian gentleman has been saying, is um, in his opinion, uh, other forms of Bitcoin are Ponzi schemes, uh, BTC or, or BCH, because they don't have an underlying fundamental value. So one thing that he has been heavily promoting uh, since he kind of started pushing BSV was using it as a, as a data store. So I'm wondering um, if the the creator is probably the wrong term, although if we, if we follow the claims, maybe the creator, but at least one of the largest promo- promoters is saying this has an underlying value. The underlying value is the real reason for this. And the trading is, is who cares? Does that, would that give um, a Jesse Powell or a CZ in, in this case, any, uh, any weapons that they might use? Is that something that might change your mind on, on the outcome of it? Uh, certainly if this ended up in a litigation posture, that might be an argument that someone would make. Absolutely. They take the, the problem with, uh, put it as an aside, I mean, the problem with Twitter and Reddit and, um, social media is that like everything that you say can become evidence. So I would expect to see that all thrown right back, um, in, in, um, in the face of whoever the plaintiff would be um, if there were some sort of BSV class action. I don't know if there will be, by the way, and I'm not suggesting that there should be, um, but I, I am, I don't know what the value looks like today. Like right after the delisting, didn't it drop by 15, 20%? Uh, 25, were, I think. 25. If that were a stock, there would already be a class action on file. Well, I guarantee it. There, Somebody would have already filed a lawsuit. 25% is a big drop for a stock. That's like a Tuesday afternoon in, in cryptocurrencies. Yeah, it is. But, um, you know, the question is, is that always going to be the case? I think the, the volatility suggests that the market is not mature. I, I would I would submit. That's my my own. That's Steve Pally on, um, on crypto assets. I, I think I would tend to agree with that. If you put that in a Twitter poll, I would, I would definitely uh, click mm-hmm. on the agree. We should do that. So, I mean, the, thing about, the thing about Twitter surveys too is you, you may or may not remember this, but I did a Twitter survey like six months ago where I asked people, um, uh, I basically I, I ran a, a, a survey to see if people would choose, um, you know, XRP or cheese. Um, and it, it was funny uh, where I actually did one where I listed all of the, uh, all, a bunch of different cryptocurrencies and, you know, said, which would you most prefer to be paid in? And the number of people who voted for XRP um, increased substantially after someone uh, in the quote unquote XRP community noticed it, you know, slapped a hashtag on it and said everybody who likes XRP should vote. At which point somebody sent me uh, some information about how you can actually buy votes uh, for a survey. So these things are um, these things are obviously not scientific. Right. No, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think. There's a, a good understanding that uh, scientific is not something that uh, Twitter is known for. I mean, I, I honestly, I can't believe that that Kraken, that the notion of delisting based on a, a Twitter survey actually went through their compliance or legal department. That seems like um, it's really interesting from a marketing standpoint, though. I mean, it, it actually is uh, maybe sometimes good sales and good marketing aren't necessarily good legal strategy. So maybe they thought, well, fuck it. Um, this is going to, you know, this is going to appeal to the people we want to appeal to. And we don't care about this other small group. And if you, we have to deal with um, some sort of legal exposure, it's a price that's that we're willing to pay. That's certainly possible. I, I think 
yeah, as you point out, Kraken may have done a very good marketing thing, but uh, put themselves in, in potential hot water. Binance, I think, is is interesting because they they attacked it from a principled point of view um, and said this is this is not something we believe in. We don't want to support it. I, I'm trying to 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 give them uh, the good faith argument here. <laughs> I just I don't see listing or delisting an asset based on what you think of one guy. I mean, does Craig Wright own all of the BSV? Does he own all of the BSV? N- yeah. No. Um, I'm, I'm under the impression that uh, between him, uh, Craig and um, Calvin Ayer, they do control a major majority of the mining infrastructure. Okay. And the development as well. So maybe it's not cent- maybe it's centralized and not decentralized in the same way that Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin Core. If if only we had some legal guidance on what sufficiently decentralized might actually mean in practice. Yeah, I can't give you that today. Sorry, <laughs> no, that'll be for another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that. I think it's going to be an interesting thing to to watch this. And I know there was a another lawsuit, not to put you on the spot, that you did cover <laughs> on that one uh, on uh, Bitcoin Cash actually relating back to Bitcoin, uh, Satoshi's vision, on the fork with uh, was it United uh, United American Corp? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's an antitrust lawsuit that is pending in federal court in Florida that was brought, bought, uh, brought by, uh, I think that's right, United American against um, a bunch of exchanges, including Kraken, uh, basically accusing... Um, and against Bitmain and who else? I wrote it up last week for Crypto Case Law Minute. And uh, I, what I did was I read, a, I read read through the briefing on the motion to dismiss. And the, the question, the interesting question to me was, uh, this was actually an antitrust lawsuit. And what the plaintiff said basically was that there was um, collusion between these folks um, that uh, to basically control uh, the outcome of, of the, um, the Bitcoin cash fork. And they said they were damaged because they invested a bunch of money in, in one particular outcome and another outcome happened. And that's uh, unfair and collusive. And, um, you know, one of the things I thought one of I thought Kraken's lawyers did a really nice job in their in their briefing. And one of the things they said was, why would we ever do something that would make an asset worth less? We make money on assets being worth more. But that's going to be an interesting lawsuit uh, to watch. And, and can we pull this back around to, to the previous discussion? And, and I'm not asking you to remember the, the dates, but I, I believe that lawsuit would have been filed or at least Kraken would have been notified at some point before they took the decision to put out a Twitter poll on the, the 15th of this month. Oh, yeah. No, that lawsuit was filed last year. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that has anything to do with, uh, with their ongoing decision, if they see the quote-unquote community as being hostile and, and actually going out and suing them based off of decisions they made. I wonder if that might play in. It, it could. I, I don't. I, I can't speak to that. It, it, it's um, if I were um, United Americans lawyers, I would certainly be looking at public statements being made by um, by Kraken mm-hmm. involving the delisting and BSV. That's one of the things about being involved in lots of disputes and lots of litigation is sometimes you forget what you've said or it's something that you say in one place that's good for you there might be bad for you in another place. It'll be fun to watch them uh, to beat each other over the heads with public statements on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a really interesting lawsuit in Florida involving Bitcoin is the one involving um, 
climb it's climbing versus right uh where i mean the guy basically is being asked in discovery uh, one of the issues is whether or not craig wright is satoshi um you know flat out and it involves i want to say a couple billion dollars ultimately in in bitcoin it's a fascinating that is a particularly fascinating dispute well we'll get you to come back on and, and brief us on that one next time all right man thank you very much thank you Alrighty, uh, thank you very much to Mr. Paley and, and to Colin, uh, Colin G. Platt. Uh, you just another show done. Uh, how are you feeling about that? Uh, we we made it through another Tuesday. We did. We got through it. Um, Thursday. Don't don't break the dream. This is Thursday when dream. it's happening. Yeah, we record this on the same day. Immediately <laughs> goes out, and Alex <laughs> does nothing. He just hits ship. Yeah, indeed. Um, just to remind you, listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we're a challenger consultancy who are working to shape the next generation of financial services, moving from digitizing paper products to truly digital products and services, working in a startup approach, um, unlike uh, trying to move the whole oil tanker in one go. Um, we create those truly digital propositions, working with banks, big techs, and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where finance meets customers. Uh, if you want to hear more blockchain Insider every single Thursday, hit the subscribe button uh, and don't be afraid to give us five stars, even though Colin G. Platt's near a field. Um, Colin, where can people find out more about you? On, on the Twitter at Colin G. Platt. And where can people find out more about PTK? Uh, on the Twitter at P Foundation with a PH. <laughs> <laughs> love it uh, you can find me at sytaylor or you can email me directly simon at 11fs.com if you want to talk more about any of the stories we've discussed today a uh, big thank you as always to our amazing production team here at 11fs uh, producer Petrit, Alex our editor thank you so much for listening we'll have more Blockchain Insider next week goodbye for now